Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. And on this week's show, I'm joined by Dr. Mike Simpson. To give you some background on Mike, Mike is best known for his role as an investigator on History Channel's docu-reality series, Hunting Hitler. Mike's also served over three decades in the military as an Airborne Ranger, Green Beret, and a Doctor of Emergency Medicine assigned to Joint Special Operations Command. He's trained as a demolitions expert, SWAT sniper, Halo parachutist, civilian paramedic, special forces medic, operations and intelligence sergeant, and board certified emergency medicine physician. Mike is now using his extensive knowledge of training and medicine to help men over 40 achieve peak physical condition. He's also the author of the best-selling book, Honed, Find Your Edge as a Man Over 40, and is the founder of Greybeard Performance. With that, hello and welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you, brother. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Hey, no problem, Mike. I mean, I, we were chatting a little bit off air there. You know, I've been following you for a while. I've seen you on some other podcasts and I, I've seen you on Hunting Hitler as well. And I was like, you know, this is a guy I really want to bring on and have a, a conversation with and really pick his brain through his entire career. Awesome. Thanks, man. And no worries, man. And I'm hoping just even that brief intro there, dude, you know, we can shed some light on some of that stuff. Because I'm sure most people reading that would be like, this can't be one dude who's done all this. So not, this is going to be like a mixed bio of some guys. It's it's a lot of compensating for short man syndrome. I got to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, obviously, Mike, you you've accomplished a lot. You're continuing continuing to accomplish a lot, dude. You know, let's take it back to the start, dude. Where where does your story start out, dude? Uh, really, my story starts kind of the, the formative part of my story. Um, I grew up in Southern California. Uh, I had kind of hippie parents. Uh, originally I was born in what's called the, and you were talking to an international audience. So in California, we have what's called the South Bay area. People are, are familiar with San Francisco, right? That's, that's the, we call it, we have the North Bay, which is San Francisco Bay. And then the South Bay, which is the Los Angeles area. In fact, I was born at what they call South Bay hospital, which I believe is still there. Uh, I spent, uh, the first 11 or so years of my life, uh, in a suburb of Los Angeles called Redondo beach which is exactly as it sounds. It's, you know, very hippie, a lot of Volkswagen vans, uh, you know, um, you know, great, great pizza and, and tacos around every corner, uh, you know, traditional, what, when people think of the beach boys in Southern California upbringing, that was a lot of what my life was like, uh, for the first 11 years. And then we moved way out in the sticks in uh, a very rural area of California. And that's where I kind of spent my formative years. So my, my, my tweener and teen years, you know, the, the, the years you, your personality really becomes solidified mm -hmm. was very much a working class, blue collar, outdoorsy upbringing, um, walking through the middle of town, uh, you know, with a, with a 22 rifle over my shoulder to go shoot coyotes and, and rabbits and, and nobody batting an eye at that. I mean, that was yeah. completely normal all night fishing trips and, you know, camping and, uh, I played uh, one year in uh, football in junior high and four years of football in high school. Um, and that's when I, I started to really, I, I was drawn to team sports, drawn to being a part of something larger than myself. Um, this was the 1980s. So there was very much, this was a time period of, of a resurgence in patriotism in the U S the sixties and seventies had been kind of a dark time in the U S it became very uncool to be, to be patriotic. Uh, and that, that came back again in the eighties. And, uh, there was a, a resurgence in people wanting to join the military as well, which I started, uh, eyeing 
right, right around uh, high school, you know, secondary school timeframe. And I knew that I wanted to do something really difficult. I wanted to do something that, you know, people, 3% or less of people can, can do that. And I had my eye on a career uh, in special forces. I couldn't go into the Green Berets directly out of high school. They'd stopped doing it at the time. So I, I went into the Rangers and did four years in the Ranger Battalion, which was absolutely the best thing for me because, you know, the, the Rangers are the perfect uh, kind of proving ground for a young late teen, early 20s. Uh, male kind of cutting his teeth mm-hmm. and did that for four years. And then I went, went on after that to a career in special forces, first as a special forces demolition sergeant, and then as a special forces medic. Um, and that kind of set the stage for everything in my life to come in the years after that's what led me being a special forces medic led me into my career in medicine. And ultimately what is what motivated me to go to night school, finish my undergraduate degree and apply to medical school and uh, I stayed in the military throughout. I went to the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, which is a, uh, a medical school run by the Department of Defense. Um, so I wore a uniform to class every day, much, much like somebody would going to a military academy and graduated, went to emergency medicine residency um, and became an EM physician and got assigned back to the special operations community uh, at the Joint Special Operations Command at what we call the Joint Medical Augmentation Unit and uh, did six years and five deployments with them and ultimately finished my career with 32 years and I retired in 2016. Yeah, that is some career path, Mike, honestly. So if we backtrack that a little bit, dude, you know, Mm -hmm. what was it, what was it that sparked that was just like, right, I wanna go and pursue this this career within the military. I know you mentioned, you know, you've got this uh, thing about being part teams and being part of something Mm -hmm. that's bigger than yourself. Was that something you started to feel towards the, the tail end of your high school career? Like, this is where I want to go next? Or, you know, what was the thought process around that? Probably early to mid high school, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. And then, uh, you know, of course, the, the military recruiters are always coming around to high schools. And, you know, and they're saying things like, well, you know, if you're, if you're really tough, you know, this is, these are some things that we can offer you. But you probably won't make it because most people don't. And yeah. uh, we actually had a deputy sheriff back home who had been a Green Beret in Vietnam. So he had all kinds of memorabilia in his house. I knew both, both of his kids were, uh, his son was one year older than me and his daughter was uh, a year or two uh, younger than me. I played, I played football with his, with his stepson. Um, so we'd go over to his house and see all of his memorabilia, uh, his, his plaques and pictures from Vietnam and get a pretty extensive uh, uh, collection of firearms as well firearms and knives and just hearing his stories i was like wow you know this is just this is just really cool really interested and i became interested in the military films you know of course the green berets uh you know john wayne and 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 films such as that and and i i was just enamored by the whole thing you know the idea of being a part of some really special unit that you can't even really talk about what you do to everybody and you're going to go through these just hellacious training events to prove yourself and you i mean you could so hellacious in fact that you know sometimes people actually perish in training uh and then you know the 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 thought of standing in the door on the ramp of an aircraft on a moonless night somewhere with a parachute mm-hmm. uh strapped to my back and, and just jumping out into the void that at the same time terrified me and intrigued me to the point that i knew it was something that i had to do okay that's awesome dude and as you're saying there, you went with the Ranger Regiment initially, just because mm-hmm. it was it was the 18X program not running at that point when you applied. It was, yeah, it was not running. So they had the year before I went in, 
they had, they didn't call it the 18 x-ray program, but you could enlist on what they called a special forces contract. And then they stopped doing it because they, they didn't have the 18 x-ray. You know, you're talking about the, the 18 x-ray pipeline is a very refined version of that okay. where they recognize that guys are going to be 18 years old, you know, lot, lots of piss and vinegar, but not a lot of experience, probably not a maturity. So they're going to need some left and right limits and some handholding. And they didn't have that, you know, the, the year before I came in, my, my good buddy, Brian Edwards, who ultimately became uh, the Sergeant Major of Special Forces Command, uh, Brian was what they call an SF baby. So he mm -hmm. went in right out of high school and went directly into that training pipeline. But it was very much like getting thrown into the deep end of the pool. And he had senior NCOs, you know, he's a, a, a private E3 and he's got senior NCOs. Uh, who are coming from the 82nd, coming from conventional military units. Uh, he had Vietnam veterans even in his special forces qualification course class. Um, so you're, you're thrown in with all these people. And yeah. there was a really high attrition rate, you know, the, of, of these, you know, these high school to, to SF pipeline guys back in the day. That's why a lot of us were pretty surprised when they brought back in the form of the x-ray program. But they put a lot more planning into the x-ray program and, you know, knowing guy, my good friend, Tim Kennedy went through the 18 x-ray program, Jeremiah Futch. I know a lot of guys that did it and it, it's a lot more comprehensive and it really set up a, a lot more as a recipe for success than it was back in the, in the eighties. So it's probably good. They did away with it at least for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, for the guys who are listening internationally here, who, you know, have maybe heard of us army Rangers and, know a little bit something around what's what's the major difference because obviously there's the guys who are actually in ranger regiment and then there's guys mm -hmm. who will go to ranger school just to get the ranger tab and stuff just yeah what's what's the major difference that we typically see within those guys yeah so the uh, the major difference that you know of course you have uh ranger regiment which is first second and third ranger battalions and then special troops battalion and regimental headquarters and this these are rangers are the shock troops uh to go anywhere around the world. I mean, probably the greatest kinship uh, that we have is with your SAS, mm -hmm. you know, as far, if I, as far as similarities to approach to training, training itself, uh, and then how that's executed. So, you know, the, the, co the whole concept of, of the Ranger Battalion and Ranger Regiment is be anywhere uh, from, from the moment the need arises and the president picks up the phone on his desk, 14 hours later, you are parachuting into somewhere, somewhere in the world to meet some, to, to take down some military objective, you know, regardless of, of what that could be an airfield, that could be uh, a hostage rescue mission, um, you name it, you know, so, you know, renegade nukes, whatever, uh, you know, this is, this has been the Ranger Regiment, you know, a tenant of what Ranger Regiment does going back as far as the eighties. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's, that's the meat and potatoes of what the Rangers do. And then of course, uh, if you look at the global war on terror, uh, no other unit uh, has as much time on target has, uh, has, has racked up the body count, uh, bad guy body count. That is uh, that Ranger regiment has, I mean, they, they've absolutely been at the, at the, the point of the spear in mm -hmm. the execution of the global war on terror. That's awesome. Thanks for clearing that up, Mike. And obviously, you know, you were saying you initially went in, you served within the Ranger Regiment, and then you transitioned mm -hmm. years later into uh, the Green Berets there as well within the Special mm -hmm. Forces program. 
What 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 brought that about to make that change and jump over to within Green Berets? Yeah, sure. Oh, and actually, so I neglected part of your last question. So Ranger School is a is a roughly two month long school that's a leadership school, and everybody okay. in regiment eventually goes through it. But it's also open to anybody in in, in Big Army and DoD, and it's looked upon as a leadership school. So it's very typical that pretty much almost every officer has to go through ranger school. Mm -hmm. So, and it's the vehicle by which they, uh, they teach and evaluate your leadership is, um, sleep and food deprivation in a, in a prolonged field environment in which you are put in a leadership position to execute dismounted patrolling. So that's the major difference. Um, now on to your next question. So, uh, uh, special forces was kind of a, the logical progression, you know, typically at the time in the 1980s, uh, if you were in Ranger Regiment, there was a couple of different routes you would go. One was the conventional army route, which would you would do some time in Ranger Regiment, then go to a conventional infantry unit somewhere, usually Korea or Germany, uh, or maybe go do some time as a drill sergeant or maybe go, do some time at Ranger School as a Ranger instructor, and then come back uh, to regiment again. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was, that was one route. And a lot of people did, you know, that was all of the platoon sergeants and the first sergeant and the sergeant major, uh, when I was in uh, ranger battalion, that was all the route that, that all of them had chosen, right. They, they'd gone off and, uh, been platoon sergeants and first sergeants and had leadership positions in other big army units and then come back. Uh, the army very much liked that because they, you know, they, they saw that as a vehicle by which, the experience and the, you know, the knowledge that you gain in Ranger Regiment can then be shared with other units. So you're, you're essentially a force multiplier. The other route to take is, is the, I'm going to stay in, in special operations, strictly in special operations route, which is to go do selection for one of the tier units or to go uh, to special forces. And, And that's very, typically it was very much a, there's no way you're coming back to the regiment if you do this, especially once you go uh, special forces, um, you're locked into a special forces military operational specialty. So then saying, oh, I want to go back and be an infantryman again, you know, whether that's in Ranger Regiment or wherever, they're typically not going to let you do that. Um, but for me, that was that was the logical progression, because, it, again, uh, you know, those were the stories that I had heard in high school. That was what I wanted to do. Um, but didn't have the opportunity to do right after uh, out of high school. So I was planning on getting out, but there were special forces, national guard units. So I could do that in a, in a reserve capacity, Mm -hmm. uh, while pursuing a career. You know, at the time I was going to pursue a a college career and ultimately go into law enforcement. That was my plan at the time. Um, but I could still kind of keep my toe in the military pond by being a, a national guardsman in a special forces national guard unit, which is what I did. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until desert storm, desert shield, when my unit was mobilized uh, and, and called up to Fort Bragg, although we didn't deploy over to the desert that I realized, you know, really full-time military and career military really is what, what calls to me and what I need to be doing. So that was the time period where I finished my training to get a special forces military occupational specialty as a demolition sergeant. And uh, I decided just to stay on active duty. And I went to the seventh special forces group um, and did uh, ultimately did 11 years there with a lot of deployments to central and South America. Okay. And I mean, you, you say there, like, you know, your, your initial orient special forces, you're a demolition sergeant. So mm-hmm. when, when did the opportunity or the, the desire to move over to the 18 mm-hmm. Delta program come about for you? 
You know, it's, I noticed right away, even, even before I got out of training when, uh, you know, the, the final phase of training in special forces, you're, you're pretty compartmentalized early on. You're only with people in the pipeline to do your military occupational specialty. So every day you're going to class with other, uh, special forces engineer candidates and getting classes on demolition and, and construction and bridge building and mine laying minefields and retrieving mines and everything else. Um, and then at the end, you're put together on teams, you know, ex, you know, special forces, operational detachment, alpha a teams um, for the purpose of going through these, these intense training scenarios that we call Robin Sage, uh, an unconventional warfare scenario and seeing the medics on the team, and you know, still realizing that, man, I've just been through the special forces engineer course, and there's still so much about being an engineer that I don't think I quite comprehend. You know, there's so much more. I'd like to go to advanced demolitions courses, you know, courses in advanced construction. Um, and but seeing that the medics were already operating at this high level and that they they had so you know you just had so much respect. Their their course was longer, their course had the highest attrition rate of any of the special forces MOSs. Um, and they were just looked upon as, as strict subject matter experts and everything. I mean, you just mm -hmm. had to respect the medics. Um, the, you know, there's tons of guys in special forces that might be a special forces weapons guy or an engineer or a commo guy who started out going to the medic course and then for whatever reason didn't make it and then got recycled, uh, into one of the other jobs, mm -hmm. you know, there, there's, there's a lot of, we don't talk about that a lot on the outside, but there's a lot of people that, that fit that category okay. uh, that, you know, they started, they started wanting to be a medic and they didn't, you know, either they figured out it wasn't for them or academics figured out it wasn't for them. And, uh, and they ended up taking another job. Uh, when I got to a team, it was the same way. The, the medics on my team were just such professionals. And I was always asking them questions. Why do you do this? Why do you do that? And one of my medics, a good friend of mine by the name of Rick Silva told me, he said, you know, you, you, you're, you're a pretty smart guy and you're very inquisitive and, and you have this thirst for knowledge. He said, I think you could do really well as a medic and you should go. And I was like, well, you know, I'll, I'll think about it. And uh, a couple of years in when I figured out that, you know, as a demo guy, uh, nine times out of 10, when we're going out to do some type of training. I would have wooden blocks in my rucksack to simulate explosives. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you know, here's your, here's your not explosive that you're going to place. And we're all going to say, boom together. You know, um, I'm not getting real. I'm not getting real demo. I'm not building bridges. Um, but the medics are always really treating sick people. You mm -hmm. know, people are always sick. You know, I'm going to my medic when I'm sick, I'm going to when I'm injured. Um, and they just, so professional and so much respect. I'm like, you know, I, I really do want that. And I didn't know that I wanted the medicine aspect of it as I wanted the challenge. It's like, this is just another challenge to me. And it wasn't until I was in the course and I realized that, you know, caring, alleviating someone's pain or, you know, making them better, that really is a calling. And that's when I knew that, that whatever I did for the rest of my life, it was somehow going to have something to do with medicine whether that was as an SF medic, a paramedic, a physician assistant, uh, or, you know, ultimately as it turned out as a physician. No, that's interesting to hear, Mike. And what, what I heard like numerous tales of just like how challenging you highlighted there, how challenging the 18 Delta program can be. 
Mm-hmm. What was it like for you transitioning through then, like, you know, rocking up to the 18 Delta School day one, you know, walking in through those doors? Um, I, because I knew, because I, I had, had, had gamed as much of it as possible in talking to the medics on my team. And, uh, the, the interesting thing about the 18 Delta course is you, uh, you, you, sh- you show up on day one, uh, and like most military courses, you show up on day one, you take a PT test, right? So, you know, they make sure you can pass a basic army PT test. They in process you, you know, here's a key to your room and here's your pillowcase and and all this other stuff and and here's your books uh and then on day two at seven o'clock in the morning you take a test you've been there one day Mm -hmm. and they give you a handout on medical terminology and they say you're going to have a test on this in the morning and most guys they you know they san antonio it was in san antonio at the time San, san antonio texas just down the road from me and uh San Antonio's always had a reputation as a party town, definitely different than most military towns. So guys would be like, oh, I just got to San Antonio. There's all these great, there's the Riverwalk. There's all these great bars. Yeah. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go out, you know, go out tonight. I did a PT test this morning. We don't have PT tomorrow. So I'm going to go out drinking tonight. And yeah, whatever. We got a test tomorrow. And uh, I took that test very, very seriously. And uh, it was a hundred question test. And I missed one on that test and uh, probably half our class got less than 60% on that test because they just completely blew it off. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that was to set the tone and let you know, you are now in an academic environment. This isn't like any other military school you've ever been to where you're very easily going to be able to figure out, okay, that's a test. That's going to be a test question or that's going to be a test question. It's like, no, you're responsible for everything. And we're holding you to a higher standard. We're not holding you to some slipshod good enough for the, for uncle Sam standard. This is a medical standard. People's lives are going to be in your hands. And and that tone was set on the very first day with that test on medical terminology, because in order to understand everything else, you had to understand medical terminology. Um, And so that, that was an eye opener for some, but I was already ready for it. And I had, I, I made uh, I made a schedule right away on uh, when I was going to study, and uh, that that I wasn't going to I wasn't going to I didn't want to ever go into a weekend with the plan that I was just going to blow off steam until late Sunday afternoon, and then oh shit I need to do laundry and study like mm-hmm. I was just never going to do that. So I made a promise to myself that every Saturday afternoon was going to be for studying. That Friday I would do whatever. Saturday morning, I would do whatever Saturday night. I would probably go out, but Saturday afternoon was for studying. And then Sunday afternoon was for, for coming back around and, and, and rechecking that knowledge. And I did that the whole course and it worked really, really well for me. Whereas a lot of people, you know, especially the course is no longer in San Antonio, but um, you could really party your way out of that course. If you didn't have the maturity level um, it was real easy to, you know, there there's, there was a, and it wasn't just confined to weekends in San Antonio. There's, there's a two for one special on a Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, we take your pick. There's a, there's mm-hmm. something going on at some either, you know, whether it's a country and Western bar or a, a rock and roll bar, there's something going on every night. So it's really easy to party yourself uh, out of that course. Yeah. And for the guys who 
you know, didn't take it as seriously as you, Mike, especially on that, that, that first 48 hours for coming into class and, you know, mm-hmm. hitting 60 or below on that test. Were they removed off course or was it a very much a stern warning of you are now on, not- on notice? Yeah, you, I mean, you would get on academic pro- probation very, very rapidly. And okay. they would, after every single test, they would post the results from the test and they wouldn't do it by name. They would do it by, you know, by you had a number. And, but you, you would see who the top 5% was, who the bottom 5% was, and there would be an asterisk next to numbers. If you were on academic probation, mm-hmm. um, you had to, you had to screw up a few times to get on that. But, and, and there was for individual blocks, you could be on academic probation for an individual block. Like it might be pharmacology. I'm doing great and everything else, but I'm failing pharmacology. Well, if you fail pharmacology, then you got to recycle into the class behind us and take it all over again. You know, it wasn't like you could, oh, I did, I did great in uh, trauma medicine, but I, I failed pharmacology or I failed nursing subjects. No, no, no. You had, you had to be passing everything. And, uh, and there were multiple tests typically throughout a week. Um, so, you know, you had to not just the lectures, but you had to read the material as well. And that's most people in the military are, are really accustomed to being spoon fed things because there, there was a policy in the military for the longest time that if it's not dis- if if it's not specifically addressed in a lecture, then it's not testable. Okay. And uh, and the SF Meta course was the first place I ever went where it's like, no, everything's fair game. If we told you to read it, if we mentioned it, if it was in if you saw it in cadaver lab, that is all fair game. That's all testable and you will be tested on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people took that first test as a rude awakening and doubled down. And some people thought it was a fluke. And I, I'll, I'll never forget this. I had, uh, I, you know, I was going through already special forces qualified. So I knew, you know, the worst thing in the world that could happen to me was I fail and I go back to a team and I, and I get my old job back, which was a job that I liked anyway. Um, there were quite a few in my class in the, in, in similar you know, you know, guys who were already SF qualified and a few in the class behind me. And I'll never forget this. This was about, uh, about halfway through, maybe a little bit farther than that through. And we were in a really high pressure testing period in my class. And one of the guys from the class behind me, they were still in their, I must've been midway through because they were still in their very, very first block, mm-hmm. which is anatomy and physiology. And anatomy and physiology is really i mean it's the foundation so it's it really is pretty easy you know it's just it's a lot of it's just rote memorization and uh and the pace at which you're learning during that block is is slower too you have a lot fewer tests and here i was halfway through where we're getting hammered with two tests a week and it's all higher level stuff and this guy comes up to me and he goes hey man i gotta ask you does it get easier after anatomy and physiology and I said, dude, if you're even asking me that question, mm-hmm. you need to drop out. You're like, you're not cut out for this. And he didn't drop out, but he did fail out. <laughs> and that, sure. that guy didn't make it. Um, so it's, you know, it doesn't, it's like and, you know, medical school years later was much the same is it just keeps getting progressively harder. You know, it's like, oh, oh, that you made it through that. Well, okay. Now you can do this, you know, and it's ramped up at a speed that, that you can react to it because you're constantly refining your, your, your academic skill set. Mm-hmm. But um, gosh, I mean, to look back at it now, you know, literally we called it drinking from the fire hose and that's literally what it was. Man. And I mean, 
with that then, Mike, as well, what was the what was that pipeline like, you know, with regards to like time span? How long were you within the 18 Delta course and how much time was dedicated to mm-hmm. the theoretical side of things and how long did you have for the applied side? I've, I've read some stuff around like with the guys from Power Rescue of them being mm-hmm. out, you know, within different cities, working with the paramedics there as well, again, that first-hand experience. Yeah, yeah, uh, we were. We um, So at the time... And I, I might be a little bit off on my numbers now, but the way it worked at the time was you had roughly nine months in San Antonio for the first phase of the SF medic course. Now that's not, that doesn't include special forces assessment and selection, which is a three week course by itself. And then you had uh, uh, at the time, the way it worked was you had uh, field phase after your MOS, your job phase, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, whereas as it, Going through as an SF, uh, as an engineer, as a demo guy, we spent, it was like three and a half or four months in, in the MOS phase. So just the first part as an SF medic is more than double that. It's nine months. And then at the end of that, you go for a month to do what's called clinical proficiency training. So you're working in various departments in a hospital. It's almost like being an intern for a month. You know, you'd work you know, one day you'd work a shift in the emergency room. The next day you'd be uh, assisting a surgeon, uh, an orthopedic surgeon or a general surgeon in the, in the operating room. You'd be maybe delivering a baby the next day or uh, working in the dental clinic uh, for a couple of days, working in the family medicine or internal medicine clinic, seeing outpatients, uh, you know, and, you know, coming up with diagnosis and treatment plans uh, for them. And that, that was a month long, a very intense month. I had supplanted that during the course and uh, I was actually at one point started going to the Fort Sam Houston uh, emergency room and uh, they had uh, uh, the uh, San Antonio at the time, the uh, eventually they moved Brook Army Medical Center off of Fort Sam proper. But at the time, the old Brook Army Medical Center, the one that had been around since around World War II, was on Fort Sam. And I would go on weekends and work in the emergency room, starting IVs, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, getting used to taking patient histories, watching the doctors and nurses and just walking it. You know, I, uh, I'd be on the trauma team, you know, you know, cutting, cutting off the clothes and, you know, starting an IV, putting in a Foley catheter, escorting patients to x-ray, taking patients up to the operating room. I, I did get to scrub in on a couple of surgeries and so this was all a lot of hands-on experience that I was getting on the side that was really extra. We weren't required to do that, but a lot of us in the course, because like you said, you're, you're purely in an academic environment and you really have this itch to, no, I want to see real patients. Yeah. I want to start an IV on somebody who really needs an IV, not just my, my classmate who I'm starting an IV because that's what we're doing today. And uh, so, you know, I did that all through the course. And then again, the, the month of clinical proficiency at the end. And then after that nine months, plus the month uh, working in a hospital, uh, which for me was working in uh, uh, Indian Health Services Hospital in Gallup, New Mexico, then you ship off to Fort Bragg and do what's called med lab. So this is uh, where you're doing a lot of live tissue training, a lot of trauma intensive training, as well as doing advanced laboratory stuff. That's where I learned how to do or hematocrit, hematocrit. That's when I learned how to spin down a urine sample and mm-hmm. and uh, do all of this. You know, you know, do do an H and H, do a white blood cell count, run a basic chemistry panel, um, uh, you name it. 
you know, and we also did a lot of our veterinary subjects at that time. And that was an additional four months, you know, so, so now you're basically at, you know, at, at 14 months of training just for the job phase of being an 18 Delta. Wow. That is something, man. Jesus. Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously you finished the course, Mike, you served as an 18 Delta in um, group as well. How long were you in 18 Delta before you decided you had that itch, you want to go back to school and become a physician? Before I even graduated the 18 Delta course, I knew that, uh, I was already thinking about trying to go be a physician assistant, trying to be a PA. Mm -hmm. And the, the deal that I made to myself was, all right, I'm going to go to a team. And at the time you didn't graduate SF medic as a paramedic. You do now the, the, the way they go through now they do but the way that it worked at the time was you would go through 18 Delta and then they would send you to a 10 week paramedic course, uh, basically just to get certified by university of Texas health science center, San Antonio. And you would take the national registry exam. And uh, the promise that I made to myself was, okay, I'm going to get my paramedic and I'm going to do a minimum of two years as a medic to pay that time back. And then I'm going to start the process of, uh, I'm either going to try to go be uh, a support medic in one of the tier units, or I'm going to start doing what I need to do to to do undergraduate and to to be a PA. And uh, the PA door got closed to me because at the time they didn't, they wanted younger and younger and younger PAs. So they capped, they put an age limit and a time and service limit on and they capped it. And uh, I ended up going to med school, not because I primarily wanted to go that route, but because it was the only option open to me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I finished my, my undergrad, I, uh, I graduated the medic course and got back to a team in, uh, I guess it was uh, 95, 96 timeframe, 90. 899 time frame 99 time frame is is when i is when i started uh doing doing night school to finish up my undergrad and uh and studying for my mcat and everything else and then by you know by 2000 uh you know early 2001 is when i was taking my mcat i think yet yeah, because uh, i was in the i was in the application process i had already taken my mcat had everything ready to graduate, but hadn't graduated yet. And that was when uh, September 11th, uh, when 9-11 occurred in mm-hmm. 2001. That, that transition then, just to jump into the med school side of things, you know, as a guy who'd served for a period of years as, a, as an 18 Delta and that, you know, I'm guessing I gave you a, a leg up on a lot of the guys within your class as well coming in just because you had that applied knowledge compared to i'm guessing a lot of people came in from maybe doing what pre-med or something into yeah that yeah yeah a lot of you know a lot of strict pre-med programs or i actually had i had classmates i had some of my classmates that ultimately were at the top of my class and became amazing physicians was one of which was a was a music major who just happened to do he got all of his prereqs done yeah uh in addition to being a music major but music was his passion uh, oddly enough yeah. I'll, I'll still rem- i still remember that but um the leg up, I did not feel the leg up until third year. Okay. Uh, because first and second year of medical school, well, that's not that's not 100 percent true. So first and second year are largely didactic, largely academic. But you do have, you know, you learn how to, you know, put it in your stethoscope and listen to somebody's heart and check somebody's reflexes and and get a basic patient history. And uh it, we had a, a couple of courses. We had one called clinical concepts. And although I was struggling, I was, you know, I'm going to be totally honest. I was struggling 
in all of the strictly academic subjects. So biochemistry, microbiology, uh, pharmacology, uh, neuroanatomy, all of these courses were just giving me fits. But uh, courses like clinical concepts, where it was, they gave you a patient vignette and x-rays to look at, and what's your diagnosis? No problem. I was like, nope, I can just knock this out with, it doesn't, no effort. Mm -hmm. And I remember we were in small groups doing that. And everybody in the small group had a higher GPA than I did. And uh, I remember making the comment one time, I'm like, well, you know, these, because uh, we always had clean concepts, we would always meet as a group on Mondays. And I said, yeah, you know, the good thing is at least, you know, these, this doesn't blow a whole weekend because it only takes like 30 minutes to, to do the work beforehand. And I had one of my classmates got irate and started cussing at me like 30 minutes. What the, like I'm on this all weekend. I'm like, uh -huh. and I'm like, well, maybe you're not looking, you're looking at it from an academic point of view. You're not looking at it as a, as a clinician. I'm like, I've treated patients before. So this is, you know, you, you learn what are the important things that come out in the patient history? What's, mm -hmm. what, what's important and what can you throw away? You know, and, and it's, and they would always try to stump us too. So a lot of these diseases were like weird tropical diseases, like brucellosis, you know, things that are pretty rare. And it's like, well, I've actually seen that. <laughs> so, so this isn't unusual to me, you know, uh -huh. cause I've, I've, I've traveled around the world as an SF medic. So I've seen these things. Um, so really that's when I started to get a little bit of an inkling. And then in third and fourth year, just working in a hospital, I'd, I'd worked in a hospital before. You know, so, you know, you need me to see a patient, you need me to draw labs, you need me to do this, do that procedural stuff. No problem. You know, that's so that was where it really things got really easy for me the last two years of medical school. Uh, whereas, you know, the, the first year, especially, I mean, I, I in first year, I, I failed uh, a biochemistry test. That was the first time in, in my academic career I'd ever failed anything. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I was in shock. Um and that's when I started to have doubts. I'm like, maybe I can't do this. You know, these are all the smart kids. And, you know, I'm, I'm a knuckle dragger. I'm still an infantry ranger at my core. What am I doing here? Um, but it did, it did help out later on. That's interesting to hear it did as well. I mean, with all that, like you say, just like the, the applied side, but still like from the academic side of things, just being like, right, okay, I feel like this is tough, but you still hammered through and got through in the end, dude. And then you went back to Joint Special Operations Command as well, post-medical school. Yeah. So I, I, I did my emergency medicine residency and I knew that I wanted to do emergency medicine specifically because I only wanted to do operational medicine. I only wanted to go back to the soft community and, you know, they don't, you don't need a dermatologist in Ranger Battalion. You know, you don't, you know, that's, you need somebody who, uh, who knows trauma, who lives and breathes trauma, who's put in thousands of chest tubes and intubated thousands of patients and, and has seen the blood and the guts already. And that's what you need because, mm -hmm. you know, especially then, because, you know, GWAT was going on. So this is, we're on a war footing. This isn't, this isn't uh, doing high school physicals for the dependent family members and, uh, you know, you know, being the, the, fa the family type doctor that delivers all the units, babies, that's not what you're there for. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're at war now. So I knew I wanted to do emergency medicine and I knew I wanted to get back to the community, uh, and had some, had some debate and some, some internal struggle as to how I wanted to do that specifically. 
And then uh, I got a phone call while I was in residency from uh, Sean Taylor, who was the deputy commander of the, of the, of the JMAO at the time and, and was an old friend of mine. And he offered me a job or he offered me a, a chance for a job. I should say I had to go out sure. and interview and, uh, and I got selected for that job and ended up, in my opinion, it's absolutely the best job, definitely the best job that an emergency physician in uniform can do bar none. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you're, you're working with the absolute cream of the crop individuals and, and just in a capacity that, uh, that, that most EM physicians can't even imagine. Man, and I mean, it's, it's a solid career progression, dude, to, to hear that pathway you've had, Mike. And one of the big things that's always uh, crept up to me, like from seeing some of the stuff on your social media is just, you know, your, how active you are and how much you train as well. Like I'm going through PT school at the moment, so I can only imagine how, uh, you know, demanding on your time med school was as well. Dude. How did you stay in shape? ready to go back to units it's not just any unit like a demanding unit at that sort of thing as well and i mean yeah. we'll get onto your book in a minute about some of the stuff in there as well but like what was your your process through med school you know i i wish i could say that it was easy and that i just i i maintained and i was dedicated to that throughout and that's that's unfortunately that's not the case because i i very much started out that way i very much started out that i would get up every morning really really early and uh, I would uh, I would put warm ups on, put my book bag on my back. I would jump on my mountain bike and I would ride to the train station. I would get on the morning train, ride the train uh, into Bethesda, get off, ride onto base mm -hmm. and lock my bike up and then walk right into the gym. It's, it, it was bike rack, door, locker room, gym. So it was right there. And then I would, I would do a workout. I would, you know, do, you know, get on it. You know, I was already warmed up from my bike ride. So get on the treadmill. Some days I'd go outside, run around post if the weather was good, uh, you know, lift some weights, do the elliptical. Um, I started out doing that, but it, it became over time. I right about the time I failed that first test, I realized I got to revamp everything. And, and, I ended up revamping things in a number of ways that we could do a whole podcast about. Basically what it had amounted to is, is I figured out that going to lectures, I was just shooting myself in the foot and I didn't need to go to lectures. And they, in med school, they don't make you go to lectures. You have to go to labs, but you don't have to go to lectures. And uh, once I figured out that I just shouldn't go to lectures, that I should just read the textbook twice, that's a better use of my time. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, that was, was a big game changer for me. And I did maintain a level of physical activity throughout. That became a lot harder second and third year during clinicals because now you're doing a lot of shift work. You're taking call, um, you know, because it's like it's like being an intern or a resident. So uh, it's a li little bit little bit different pace. And I still tried to maintain it as much as possible. You're not eating right, right? You're eating hospital cafeteria food. Uh, God, on my surgery rotation, I lived on pop tarts and energy drinks on my mm -hmm. surgery rotation. So just, you know, treating, treating my body like a landfill, to be perfectly honest with you. So I did gain some weight. And uh, in my fourth year, when you get to do a lot of electives, uh, you know, in preparation for going into your intern year, you got a lot of leeway. So when I planned out my electives, I made, I made fitness a priority again. But you have to realize that I went to med school at age 36. So I was just past my prime when I started med school. So by the time I was getting ready to graduate, I was pushing 40 years old. And 
what I had done my entire life was, all right, say I go a few months without working out. I'm going to, I'm going to get serious about it. The first three days is going to be absolute hell. And by the end of the first week, it's going to start feeling better again. And by week two, I'm going to be back on my game, right? I'm going to, the weight's going to just melt off of me. I'm going to get my strength back. I'm going to get my speed back. And then, oh, surprise, surprise. Hey, guess what? You're middle-aged now, fucker. It doesn't work that way. So, wow. Okay. I got to be a lot more careful. Mm -hmm. So it took me a little bit longer to ramp up that last year med school going into residency and then intern year and the first part of second year i did every physically i did everything you can possibly do wrong i was uh working shift work i wasn't working out i was going at one point i went 60 straight days without a day off wow. because yeah so they would uh, i would have days that were technically off but they would, my day off would fall on a, like a grand rounds day, which, which is mandatory attendance. So we used to call that the DOMA day off my ass. So I, 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 because of DOMAs, I ended up at one point going 60 straight days that I had to be in uniform at the hospital every mm -hmm. single day for one reason or another, even if it was just for a brief period of time, working nights, working evenings, going back to days, um, never sleeping enough you don't have a, a meal time or a meal break during a shift in the emergency room. So I got in this very unhealthy habit of, I would eat a meal right before a shift. I would then snack during an eight hour shift and eat a meal right after the shift. And then of course you go to sleep right after that. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was doing everything wrong, never getting enough sleep. My cortisol levels were through the roof. Um, and I gained around 30 pounds. And then about midway through residency, I was like, you know what? I, again, I got to, I, I had this realization that, uh, I got to start doing things right. And cause I want to go back to the soft community. They're not going to take me the way I am now. It's, uh, the, what I, what I did in my twenties and thirties is not going to work. And then the, the realization was, Hey, the little voice in your head is, Hey, guess what? You've had four years of undergraduate four years of medical school, and now almost two years in residency to learn about everything that the human body does. So the way you should eat, the way you should exercise, the way you should sleep, you already know all that. You just need to put it to use. And so uh, midway through residency, I started putting, putting it to use. And, and I, got the, I got the warrior mindset back. Mm -hmm. And by the time I interviewed to get into the Mao, I was in great shape. And by the time I reported for duty, I was even in even better shape um, because I just, I made that a priority and uh, you know, I, I developed and, and I really cultivated, you know, what I, what I refer to in the book is that, that warrior athlete mentality that this, this is my priority. And in spite of everything else, this is my priority. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would, I would get, I would get up. I got a membership at a, at a 24 hour fitness. Uh, it was actually an anytime fitness. I think I would get up and uh, I would be in the gym when nobody else was there. You know, the people that clean the gym hadn't even come in yet. And, uh, you know, I would, I would get on the treadmill and, and do my cardio and do my strength, my strength training, and then, uh, and then go work my shift. And then if I had time in the evening, I would go for, for a light run, uh, you know, with my headphones on, maybe listening to a journal article or something like that. And, uh, I just, I just absolutely made it a priority. I'm like, if I don't have to be the smartest 
you know, I, I'm going to make it through this and I know I'm going to make it through this academically. I'm going to make it through residency and I'm going to pass my board exam. Um, but that's not going to do me any good if, if physically I'm just a complete pile of trash. So I need to prioritize that because, you know, I had to, I had to come to that realization of, you know, why am I here? I'm here because I wanted to go back to my same community and be an asset, not be a liability. So I had to make that a priority. And, uh, you know, thankfully through, through most of my post-residency career and my time in the unit, I was always able to carve out the time for that and make it enough of a priority. And, you know, there's, there's ups and downs to anything. And, uh, you know, I mentioned in the book that when, you know, uh, right around 2012 timeframe, uh, the timeframe, when I figured out that my testosterone had bottomed out, you know, I started having some issues again that I, that I had to address. And there've been, there was, there was never one point, you know, there've been multiple small, small aha moments mm -hmm. throughout my life. And, uh, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. You know, it's, it's, you know, just having one aha moment. I don't think you appreciate it as much. And I don't think you refine that knowledge as much. So I've had multiple aha moments and that's why I incorporated them all. And, you know, the philosophy that you've seen in the book uh, was born out of those. Yeah. I mean, thanks. Thanks for just your open, honest uh, account of that, Mike. I know a lot of guys would say, like, oh yeah, you know, I, I cruised through medical school and I stayed on top of everything. I was just, you know, on my game every single day, which, you know, for guys accomplished as much as you uh, have, you know, just saying like, well, no, there is down points. There is points where you fall off the line and get back into it and that as well. It's interesting because you mentioned there about obviously, you, you know, you, you recognized you weren't in the shape that you need to be to go back into unit to be an asset to that unit. And obviously at the start of your book as well, you know, you talk about going out on an op and you're what in your later forties at this stage sort of thing mm -hmm. as well. You've got guys on, uh, on mission with you who you're old enough to be their dad in some cases you've mentioned sort of <laughs> things. So, you know, how, how's your training evolved over the years from, you know, back when you were playing high school football into, you know, range regiment early, early mm -hmm. uh, time within SF and now, you know, where you're at currently. Yeah. The, the big evolution for me has been, you know, it's, we didn't, when I, I went to high school in the 1980s, uh, coaches knew how to come up with plays. I, I don't think there was any science behind anything we did as conditioning. You know, mm -hmm. it's, you know, we're going to run more, we're going to lift more, go home and eat spaghetti and then come back and we're going to run more and we're going to lift more. And mm -hmm. that's, uh, I guess that's what we do. Right. Um, you know, there was, I, I can remember hearing about, I, I don't, I don't remember ever seeing this personally, but I can remember hearing about coaches that would tell players not to drink water during practice so they could get used to that, you know, uh, which, which now is laughable. I mean, just what, what do you mean? Get, you know, get used to get used to cellular apoptosis, you know, how the, you know, I don't think you can do that, <laughs> you know, get used to permanent damage, <laughs> kidney damage. Um, so as I've progressed forward, you know, I have had to realize, you know, that, uh, it isn't all about being, you know, back in the day and old school and this work, this worked for me 20 years ago. So, so damn it, it's going to work for me now. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, look at what are the experts saying? You know, what are the experts saying when it comes to diet and nutrition? What are the experts saying when it comes to how you should approach uh, a workout and, you know, uh, you know, is, is it enough? I used to think it was enough to run as far as I could, as fast as I could come back from that and then do a bunch of sets of push-ups and a bunch of sets of crunchies. And that's it. 
I'm, I'm done for the day. And then if I'm going to go lift, it's, you know, Monday is chest and bicep one Monday's chest and tries and Tuesday's back and buys and mm -hmm. Wednesday is leg day and or leg and shoulders. And, you know, uh, you know, reading these stupid fitness magazines that, that don't tell you that the reason the guy in the cover looks that way is because he's on the juice, mm -hmm. not because of any of the workouts that they're showing in the workout magazine. You know, it's, I, I had to recognize what I did know. My, what I did know was enough of a gateway into seeing what I didn't know. So I knew to look around for experts and, and, you know, get, get a personal trainer. And that's on the most recent leg of my journey. That's been key to me more than anything, you know, cause I, I did, I was always open throughout this, you know, to reaching out to others, you know, Hey, what do you do? You know, what do you think is a good workout for this? A good workout for that, uh, to address this weakness or, or this, um, but, but I've really taken it to heart um, in the last six years or so in, in enlisting a personal trainer and, you know, and asking them, not, not just doing the exercises that they assign me, but asking them, you know, you know well, why? Well, why? Why is it structured? Why are you structuring these exercises on this day and, and the progression into this from this week to the next week? Um, and, you know, what's the thought process behind that? It's, it's really taught me a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and talking, talking to the experts on nutrition, you know, cause there's, there's so many, you know, air quotes experts out there that are in complete disagreement, you know, whether we're talking about carbs or veganism or carnivore or paleo, uh, you know, calorie counting, don't calorie count calories. Uh, you know, there's a lot of disagreement out there and you have to work, look at the value of the evidence. Cause it's, that's one important thing that, that I did learn in my academic career is, is how to evaluate research and say, okay, is this good research or is this bad research? You know, did, did they, did they properly control for confounding variables? Did they have a large enough sample size? Is this really applicable or is it not applicable? You know, and that's why I look at movies like game changers and, tons of bells go off in my head. It's like, Oh, you're neglecting this. You're neglect. Oh, that's yeah. That sounds great, but that's anecdotal. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's one of the, been one of the keys for me is being able to recognize that. Cause I'm not, I, I'm never the smartest person in the room and I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. I don't, I don't like being the person necessarily that everybody looks to for answers, but I like, I like knowing how to sift through answers and saying, all right, that's, that looks like it has legitimacy or that doesn't. And, and that's, uh, that's been a big part of my quest. And that, that was, you know, one of the impetuses from writing the book is taking all that knowledge, you know, the stuff that I had learned on my own academically, the stuff that I had learned on my own operationally and the stuff that I had outsourced and putting it all together in, in one source. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it's great to see. And with regards to the book, like just a, just a wealth of knowledge within that book uh, you put together, Mike, you know, when, when did, when did the owners come about that you're like, right, I'm going to sit down and actually put pen to paper here and write this book. Yeah. So that was kind of, again, that was a weird, uh, a weird chain of aha moments, right. Is um, when I started really to kind of have a social media presence and uh, I had, you know, before I'd even started Graybeard performance, my, my life and lifestyle brand and supplement company, um, I, I was catching the eye of a lot of like-minded individuals and a lot of them, I, I, I would get weekly emails of, Hey, listen to your podcast, uh, follow you on social media. I'm 51 years old. I, you know, I played division two baseball in college. This was years ago. I'm thinking about doing jujitsu. I've had X number of surgeries. 
I want to know what I can do, what I can't do. Hey, what do you think about this supplement? Hey, what do you think about chiropractors? Hey, my doctor's advising this surgery. And I just, I found out that I was answering a lot of the same questions again and again and again and again. And, but it still didn't quite sink in with me. You know, I would make comments, you know, I would talk about it on the podcast and say, Hey, listen to this pod. You know, I, I would invite a testosterone replacement expert, you know, Dr. Drew wing, you would come on. We would talk about testosterone. I would invite Mike Dolce on and we would talk about nutrition. Um, but I, it, it didn't, hadn't, hadn't clicked yet that, Hey, I just need to put this in a book. But I, I did have the, the conversation and I said at one point, you know, I should just have this all on a website. So whenever anybody asks me any question, I just send them a link to the website. And, oh, yeah, I've already answered that question. It's here, you know. And I was like, maybe I should write a blog on it. I don't know. Um, and but I hadn't thought about putting it in book format. I was actually writing a completely separate book. And then I talked to a book publisher about the book that I was writing. And his uh, Tucker Max was the one I was talking to. And he said, you know, you got all this stuff with Graybeard going on. Why aren't you writing a book about that stuff? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you know what? Between my podcast and the emails I've already responded to, some of the blog, ar blog articles and the interviews I've done, I probably have 60% of that already written, actually. And this was right as we were going into COVID. And uh, so I sat down and I did it. And it didn't take me that long again because I had so much of the information already right there at my fingertips. I just had to kind of put it in a logical format, mm -hmm. uh, which is what I did. And it's, it, I feel so rewarded in having written the book because of the great feedback that I've gotten. I'm up to almost 300 reviews on Amazon, the overwhelmingly positive, you know, very few people have written negative reviews of the book and, um, uh, you know, emails that I've gotten from people about that it's make made them take fitness serious seriously for once or nutrition or preventive health you know that they're they're actually they're getting checkups now they're getting lab work for the first time in their life because they blew it off um and i just wanted people to know you know i'm 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 55 at this point i was 54 when i was writing the book i'm 55 um i am considered 100 percent disabled by you know classified classified by the va um, my MRIs look like, uh, you, you put me in, in a tumble dryer and ran me through it for about 10 years. Um, but I still get in the gym and I get after it every day and, mm -hmm. you know, two to three days a week. I, I, I took a two month hiatus from jujitsu, uh, over the last couple months for, a, for a number of reasons that, that I'm not going to get into because they would just be excuses. Admittedly, I just didn't prioritize it. Um, but, you know, typically, typically I'm, I'm doing strength and conditioning four to five days a week and I'm doing grappling or striking two to three days a week and uh, with people half my age. And I'm, I'm able to do that because I've, there aren't shortcuts, but I figured out how to work smarter instead of working harder. What works, works for me, why my, what the effects of aging are and how I need to adjust to those, especially when it comes to rest and diet and sleep. I mean, you, you cover those uh, elements really well in your book. I do like the, the fact that, you know, you touch upon all those elements. So you're uh, change up an approach to your, your strength training, um, you know, addressing diet issues. You really push, which I quite like as well, just your, your touch on the sleep and supplementation quite near the front of the book, whereas I tend mm -hmm. to find with a lot of books like that it seems to be pushed to the back and everyone wants to go for the sexy workout stuff and that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, I've taken, I, I've had some critiques on the book that, oh, it's too basic or, you know, I, I, you don't even give a detailed workout plan and, and, 
I wanted it to be that I wanted the broadest appeal possible. You know, I could have written a comprehensive six week training plan of both uh, strength and conditioning and nutrition. And it would have appealed to about 5% of the people that this book is appealing to now, because I wanted this to be a book for, for everybody, for the mm -hmm. person who is literally, if you've been on the couch for two decades, you can benefit from this book. Or if you have a plan and you just want to tweak it a little bit, you can get something out of this book. You know, it's, I think uh, some people were expecting, uh, I don't know if they were expecting Arnold Schwarzenegger's book, you know, with pictures of me in the gym for every single exercise. Hey, you know, there's a place for that, but that's, mm -hmm. that isn't the book that I wanted to write. I wanted yeah. the broadest appeal possible. And when people say that this book is too basic to them, I say, Hey, guess what? It's, it is basic. There's nothing fancy. This isn't about, you know, I'm not going to discover, we have been doing the same physical movements that we do now for millions of years. All right. There's nothing new there. Right. You know, people get all, people got all excited a couple of decades back about Pilates, forgetting that Pilates was like a hundred years old. Mm -hmm. or however, it's, it's really old. It's been around forever. Right. Yoga has been around for thousands of years and people are acting like it's something new. These aren't new things. You know, there's not you don't need new. You don't need, you know, if you want flashy, if you want fad, if you want some guaranteed 20 minutes a day workout program this is not the book for you. If you want stuff that's founded in science, basic uh, anatomy, physiology, kinesiology, physics, biochemistry, microbiology, if you want that, then this is the book for you because mm -hmm. it's, I, I wrote it so that anybody can read it and get a little bit better or yep. get a lot better, you know? And it's, uh, it, there's something, even, even pro professional athletes have read this book and said, uh, I totally changed my sleep because of you. And guess what? I had never gotten a, uh, I'd never gotten a skin cancer screening. And because of your book, I went and got a skin cancer screening and I've had two, two, uh, early stage molds removed that could have been, could have developed into cancer later on because of reading your book, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. little tweaks in nutrition, little tweaks in supplementation. Um, Again, I wanted this book to have the most broad appeal possible. And I think, I think I've achieved that. Um, you know, it's, I, I've, some of the criticisms against me are valid. You know, a lot of, I, I really pissed a lot of people off saying that I think canola oil is okay. <laughs> I can't, I was really shocked at how many people like literally have an emotional reaction when you say the word canola oil. Um, but, uh, and it's, and it's made me reevaluate. I've gone back and looked at that for just that reason. And I mm -hmm. think if I, if I, do an addendum to the book in the future, I I'll probably reframe that. I don't think, was I a hundred percent wrong? No, but I, I probably could have worded it better. That's, that's the thing. I think like on many of those points you've mentioned there, Mike, like, yeah, like whenever something new comes out in health and wellness, I would say, yeah, check the history books and see where it came out originally. You see a platinum yeah. yoga. I remember early 2000s when kettlebells suddenly took off again so it's like yeah there, there's nothing new you know if you look yeah. back back 1800s and stuff like that it's, just, it's still been a big thing you know it's it's not a brand new tool to us it's just totally. some new limelight um but with regards to you say the book being more of a general overview without some deep specifics like on programs and stuff like that as well it's one of the things you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't i've done it in yeah. the past where i've written programs like specific like 
still quite general, but quite specific of a, a program. And people will come out like, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm sorry, I can't yeah. sit and write 7 billion different programs for you just in case. Yeah, I mean, if so if I would have if I would have written a program and I would have said, OK, I want, you know, on this day, you're going to be do this many sets of deficit deadlift. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, my coach told me deficit deadlifts are the worst exercise you can possibly do. And I had a cousin that has these injuries because he used to do those all the time. And I'm not doing that, you know, so, you know, the more specific you get, the more exclusionary you become. Yeah. And, you know, that's why, you know, the, the fitness chapter of the book, especially is all about, I'm like, here are the, these are the pillars of fitness. These are how you need to address them. These are how you need, this is how you need to address a, and plan for a well-balanced uh, fitness program. And, and I, I reiterate throughout the book, you know, take what I'm giving you as a, as a building block and then pull somebody in who's an expert in this for some personal input mm -hmm. on you, your specific body type and your specific fitness and nutrition needs. Um, you know, recognizing that, you know, nothing at all is one side fits all, you know, I've just recently in the last few weeks, I have some really, really bad issues with my right hip. I have uh, no cartilage left at all in my right hip. There is a hip replacement in my future at some point. And uh, I went through a two-week period where between Monday and Tuesday workouts, Wednesday, I was just a complete invalid. And Wednesday is my SWAT training day. So I'm going to training, needing practically needing crutches. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I told my coach, I'm like, Hey, we, we just, we got to modify this. Yeah. This is, you know, uh, and so, cause it was basically hammering squats, multiple different types of squats on a Monday, and then multiple different types of deadlift on a Tuesday. And it was just, my, my hip was just screaming. So we had to modify that, you know, and, and everything that's out there, there is no, there is no perfect workout routine that's going to apply to a thousand people, you know, that's, a hundred of those people are going to have physical limitations to where they can't do it. Uh, you know, a hundred of those people, it's going to be too advanced. Another hundred of those people, it's going to be too basic and it, and it goes down the line. Yeah, definitely. Definitely did. And one of the things you mentioned earlier, Mike, and I know you said in your book as well, um, just to de delve into a bit there, like obviously with individuals who are more active in their lifestyle, you know, who may serve in the military or first responder organizations and that, you know, you touch upon the importance of, screening and blood work and that you know mm -hmm. how often do you recommend people get these done is it is it every year they need to be going getting this done and what were the key elements they need to be looking out for within this work when it comes back to them yeah i i think i mean if when you're young and you're healthy you know you can you're if you're going five years uh, that that's probably fine you know it's we used to have a lot more frequent uh physical physical exam requirement in the military. And they finally figured out that, you know, a lot of this, if you haven't had huge changes to your, to, to what you're doing physically or how you're feeling physically, then you don't necessarily have to do it that often. And and they started doing it as basically like a questionnaire format mm -hmm. that you would do screening questions, you know, you know, how's your sleep? Are you using tobacco? Are you drinking alcohol? Uh, you know, how's your exercise tolerance? What's your diet like? And, and as long as, as those gates were all in the green, then you could kick that physical exam requirement and those lab requirements, you know, down the road a little bit, and, you know, it's going to vary from person to person. It's going to vary what kind of lifestyle you lead, what kind of family history you have, what your own medical history is, but everyone, if you're 40 years old, you need to have a doctor that is your doctor. Mm -hmm. You know, th this is, you, you don't have to have 
a dermatologist and an endocrinologist and a urologist you need, but you need, as a minimum, you need to have a primary care physician that is your doctor. And you need to have that conversation like this. Look, this is what I do. This is, you know, the demands that I put on my body on a regular basis, you know, through career, through family, through hobbies and everything else. And, um, what, what are the guidelines and the guidelines are always changing. You know, mm -hmm. the, you know, the guidelines, from the, you know, the American Academy of Cardiologists, you know, how often, you know, when do you need to get your first EKG? And then how often should it be repeated? You know, uh, guidelines uh, from, uh, from surgeons and from oncologists on when you need that colonoscopy and how often it needs to be repeated. And, and it, it's, it's going to be different for me than it is for you because of age, because of family history, because of personal history. But all that needs to be taken into account. So my advice to everybody is if you're 40, have a doctor, see them. And, you know, it's, I would plan on seeing them every other year, unless they tell you, you need to be seen sooner. And, uh, on your first visit, there should be just a ton of baseline labs done. And again, these are a baseline. So even if you're feeling fine, you know, I, I want to know what your thyroid is today, because if, if you're not doing quite as good two years from now, and I check it, well, was it, there already is, is thyroid the culprit? Is it not the culprit? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, so knowing your thyroid levels, your cortisol levels, your basic chemistry, your hemoglobin, your hematocrit, uh, your glomerular filtration rate of your kidneys, all these things are really important. And there's a lot of tests there's debate on, you know, like, uh, it, we go back and forth on prostate specific antigens on what age you should do it and how often you should do it. We go same way with EKGs. We go back and forth on doing EKGs and, and screenings. And uh, that's why I mentioned in, in that chapter of the book, and like, you know, I, as I'm writing this, things have already changed recently. And, and if, if you go back and read this book two years from now, those guidelines are going to be different again. And those, I, as much as possible, I went by the, you know, American heart guidelines, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, uh, family medicine, internal medicine, guidelines that are published that you can look up. But, but again, these things are changing all the time. So um, if you have medical problems, if you've had surgeries, it needs to start sooner. But as a minimum, if you've been going through life, like I'm fine, I only go to a doctor when I'm sick. At age 40, in my opinion, that stops. At age 40, it's, I'm going to get in there every two years and, and I'm going and to get some, and that's also when you start, you start doing uh, your, 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 uh, annual or biannual skin exams to check for skin cancer. You need to be getting an eye exam. You know, that it was in, in my, uh, mid thirties was when I first needed eyeglasses. Uh, you know, so an annual eye exam is always a great idea. Um, but you know, that's have a frank conversation with your doctor and let mm -hmm. them know what your concerns are and what your individual and family history is and, and, and come up with a plan for how often you're going to see them. Cool. That's some great, great advice there. Thank you very much for that, Mike. Um, Mike, obviously you've had a great career path. You know, you've been special forces operator, you're a doctor, you're an author, you're an entrepreneur, you know, what, what's next? Where are you going next, Mike? Well, uh, Elon Musk moved to Texas. I don't know if I can get on SpaceX or not. You know, I guess, I guess that depends on if I get a chance to meet him and impress uh -huh. him in person. I don't know. That would be cool. Um, I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. So, uh, the big concentration for me is, is growing Graybeard performance mm -hmm. into, into a major, I want to have a complete 
I'm, I'm only have two supplements in my line. Now I want to grow that to as many as seven or even more. Um, I want that to be a central hub where people go to watch videos and, and read blogs, uh, about, about fitness, about nutrition. Um, you know, we, we live in such a great time that, you know, 50 really is the new 30. And, you know, the, the things I'm doing at age 55, if you would have told me at 25, that 55 year olds would were doing them or would do them. I never would have believed it. You know, mm-hmm. to me, a 55 year old was just ancient. I, I couldn't have possibly imagined that. So I, I want everyone to get the most out of their life. And I, I don't, I don't want people to fall into the trap of, well, what's average is normal. You know, it's it, what's average is to gain all this weight in the latter half of my life. And, uh, you know, I, I worked my ass off for a lot of years. And now that I'm in a period of my life where I can actually have the time to enjoy myself, my knees are shot. My back is shot. I got a big old gut. Uh, so I can't do any of those things. Well, I, I don't want, want life to be that way for people. I want them to get full enjoyment. You know, it, it's like, what do they say in, uh, in, in the movie, in Apollo 13, you know, I want to know how to squeeze every jewel, you know, every, every mm-hmm. watt out of this one little piece of equipment, you know, you know, and, and I want people to do that with their lives. I want to live to be 104. Cause I said, when I was 52, I said, I'm, I'm, eh, I'm at the halfway point. I got, I got 52 good, more good years left. You know, maybe I'll adjust that up as I get older, but right now my goal is, is to live to 104. And I, I want to be doing stuff that I enjoy and tell them I want to be eating foods that I like and doing activities that I like. And, and spending quality time with, with my family and my dogs and uh, for many, many years to come. I don't want it to become about, you know, re- reaching for my four-footed cane and sitting in the recliner all day because that's what people expect in their, mm-hmm. in their older years. It's, life doesn't have to be like that. We have the tools now. We know so much more than we knew then about the human body, about what supplements you need to take, about testosterone replacement, hormone optimization, uh, exercise and nutrition, you know, take advantage of those things. These are things we didn't know 50 years ago. So there's no reason, you know, we, we should be living to biblical ages at this point. And I think Elon Musk even recently talked about it, that, you know, we're at a point now where people are going to be able to live to be 120 years old. And I believe that because we know so much more and, and, and it starts now it starts today. You know, even if you're listening to this and you're in your twenties or thirties, um, take advantage of my battle scars. You know, it's, yeah, this is a plug for my book, you know, you know, you know, read, even if you just read the first couple of chapters about what to do and not do. Uh, and you know, the fact that the path, the, the path to injury is paved with shortcuts, mm-hmm. you know, and to, to avoid that, um, take advantage of the lessons that others have learned for you and the price that others have paid and, uh, and live a long, healthy and active life. That's awesome. That's awesome advice there, Mike, and definitely something that resonates with me and I'm sure it resonates with many people listening into this podcast as well. So uh, 100% thank you for that, Mike. Um, final thing, may I always ask everyone who comes on here, I'm always intrigued what they're engaged in for their own development and learning. So on mm-hmm. that, could you give us a, a book, an app or a website you've personally found useful for your own education or development? A uh, book or app or website. So um uh, the app that immediately comes to mind is the, is the, I use the chronometer app and, uh, I don't, I, and I talk, you know, I talk about in the book that I'm not a big fan of counting calories, mm-hmm. 
and things like that. But um, uh, about 13 months ago, uh, you know, again, I had another one of those time periods where I had gained a lot of weight. I, my, my fitness was amazing. I was, I was very, very active, but I had put on a lot of fat without realizing it. I was carrying a lot, a lot of extra weight, even though I was still kicking ass in the gym every day. And, you know, and that wasn't healthy. So in order to do that, I did have to spend a time where I was really paying attention to my macros, paying attention to how much I was consuming and how much I was expending. And I used the chronometer app for that. Um, so that was really helpful. Um, as far as, uh, books, you know, I got, man, I got a ton of books that people are sending me books all the time and, uh, they just stack up and I, and I don't get to them. Um, I read breathe Hicks and Gracie's mm-hmm. autobiography. That's the most recent book that I've been reading. And, uh, I found it to be really interesting and really rewarding. So, you know, app, the chronometer app books, uh, Hicks and Gracie. Um, I think, uh, you know, breathe by Hicks and Gracie, I think is a, is a great book for anybody to read. Um, and, you know, follow people on social media that are going to motivate you follow guys like Mike Dolce, uh, gives all kinds of great free nutritional tri- tips all the time. Uh, follow Jocko, follow Robin Black. If you're a fan of martial arts, you should be following Robin Black. He's a Canadian. Uh, he's a wealth of knowledge in mixed martial arts. And he just and he has such a great outlook on everything. And he, and he gets so much enjoyment out of everything that he posts. So, you know, look for thought leaders like that to follow and, and uh, try to try to stay away from the negativity. There's so much negativity on social media. Oh, yeah. And I get caught up in it myself because I, I like to, I like to sling shit. So uh, <laughs> and, and I get drugged down into the mud. I like to I like to argue with people. You know, I like to put people in their place and, and, and I have to check myself from time to time. And I, and I've gotten out, of, I've, I've, I've had people check me on it, you know, that, you know, Hey, you're, you're really being, you're being more of an asshole than usual. Okay. All right. That's fair. Um, so, uh, you know, try, let's try to use social media for something, the positive that it can be, as opposed to the negative that it has become. That's awesome. Some really good resources there, Mike, and appreciate that, dude. I'll make sure to stick them in our show notes. Um, Mike, it's been an absolute privilege chatting to you, dude. If anyone is listening to this, you know, either wants to find out a bit more about you, wants to reach out at all, ask any questions, what's the best way they can do that? Be- uh, absolute best way is if you go to graybeardperformance.com and that's graybeard, G-R-E-Y. But even if you spell it wrong, I set it up so it'll still direct you to my website. So go to graybeardperformance.com. You can click, uh, scroll down. There's a link to buy my book from Amazon. Uh, right there on the front page. There's also links to purchase my supplements. You can get my t-shirts, my rash guards, my geese. Uh, and uh, also there is a link to subscribe to my emails that I do. Uh, I do come out with emails providing, you know, some free instructional stuff from time to time. I also, whenever I else, whenever I have something new coming on along, like a product or a promotion uh, or, or a sale, uh, it goes to my email subscribers first and foremost. Uh, you can also contact me directly uh, through the website. Awesome. Oh, oh, and I'm on Instagram at uh, Dr. Mike Simpson. Perfect. I'll stick those in the show notes as well, Mike. Once again, Mike, you know, thank you very much. I know you're a busy dude, so I'm very appreciative of you giving up your time to chat to me. My pleasure, man. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. No problem, Mike. You take care. You too. Okay, guys, so that's another week's episode done and dusted. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I hope it gave you some new information or made you think a little bit more deeper into some of your practice or into different topics. If you enjoyed the episode, 
please leave us a review. Um, it really means a lot to us guys and really helps bump up the podcast within the, the rating scales as well. And once again, please make sure you pass this on to your colleagues, your friends who are in the performance space as well, and just help get this message out. All right, guys, take care. See you next week.